Hey, it's Sean Illing. Just a quick note before our episode today. Like the rest of you, we are looking on in horror and grief at the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that left 19 children and two teachers murdered. I promise you, we are going to talk about this soon. That is what we do on this show. Until then, take it away, Jamil. Should we tear our monuments down? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. This month marks two years since two things happened. A Minneapolis police officer murdered George Floyd, and an all-too-brief global civil rights uprising began. Part of that involved demonstrators vandalizing and toppling monuments depicting slave owners, Confederate traitors, and slaughterous explorers. When you're knocking down statues, it's helpful to have the advice of an expert. Aaron Thompson is America's first and only known professor of art crime. What that means is she studies the intersection between the art world and criminal behavior. Things like forgery, theft, and the deliberate destruction of art. Aaron was checking Twitter in June of 2020 when she came across a video from the Minneapolis State Capitol. The footage showed members of an indigenous movement attempting to tear Christopher Columbus down from his perch. Now, well, tomorrow we'll be able to say we are still here, but he's gone. Yeah. Bringing her professional expertise to bear, Thompson tweeted, quote, As a professor who studies the deliberate destruction of cultural heritage, let me just tell you, use a, a chain instead of a rope next time, and it'll go faster. The tweet went viral. And in her new book, Smashing Statues, the Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, she is similarly strident in her judgment of the monuments that we Americans have for too long accepted in the backdrops of our lives. The Southern Poverty Law Center reported earlier this year that Floyd's murder sparked the removal, relocation, or renaming of at least 200 public monuments and memorials to Confederates. Still, the SPLC counts nearly 2,100 still standing. Thompson correctly notes in the book that, quote, monuments spotlight people whose lives and deeds viewers are supposed to emulate. If so, what are we doing honoring men like Christopher Columbus and Robert E. Lee? Why do we recreate them as statues and name cities, bridges, schools, and military bases after them? The recent massacre at a Buffalo grocery store is just the latest proof that we don't need monuments honoring white supremacy's past. It's in the here and now. But what kind of effect have these monuments had on our present? That's part of what I wanted to talk with Thompson about. But first, I had to start with that tweet. Well, so I opened up Twitter after having a cocktail. Never a good idea. (laughs) Right. And I saw a video of... Mike Forcha, an indigenous activist in the Twin Cities, throwing a rope around the neck of a statue of Christopher Columbus. And I tweeted, and this tweet went viral. Um, Tucker Carlson denounced me for leading armies of nihilists to topple statues, which, you know, the only nihilists I know are my kids, and they don't even listen to me about bedtime. So I cannot imagine who I'm supposedly uh, encouraging to do this. (laughs) 
<laughs> but what was interesting to me that there are thousands of replies to this tweet with people arguing about things that I thought were sort of settled, like the fact that statues can be harmful or people saying that taking down a statue is some sort of inhuman, you know, historically unprecedented thing. And I'm a classicist by my training. My PhD in art history is in ancient Greek and Roman uh, materials. Everything I study was at one point torn down and thrown into a pit because somebody didn't like it. And then we dug it up again. So I knew that this changing of statues when ideas of power changes is very common in human history. And I thought, all right, I can answer some questions and then by researching this book, answer some questions of my own. So I also have a JD, I'm a lawyer as well. And I wanted to know what's the legalities of statue removal and statue reconsideration. And it turns out that Forcha, whom I had the privilege to interview for one of the chapters in my book about this act of taking down the Columbus statue, had tried for essentially his entire adult life to ask the Minnesota State Capitol to reconsider having the statue on display. And every single time he followed what he was told was the procedure, those petitions were essentially just thrown away. Because it turns out there was no legal means in Minnesota and in many other states to ask for the reconsideration of a public monument. So it's really no surprise to me that when people don't have any peaceful means of removing something that is painful to them, they are going to despair of having their voices heard peacefully and are going to commit acts of civil disobedience. Right. And legal means of not just asking for the removal of a monument or a memorial, but monuments and memorials that are designed in many cases to intimidate, to make people feel lesser. Earlier in your book, you actually make sure to make the distinction between monument and memorial. What is the difference and why is that important when we think about the purpose of Confederate monuments and memorials specifically? A memorial is something that exists to remind us of something tragic in the past. It's something that we don't want to have happen again. A monument exists to celebrate what we want to honor in our society, what we want to have continuing into the future. So Confederate objects are often seen as memorials mourning the dead of this tragedy, quote unquote, of the Confederacy. But there really are monuments. They're really there to say, this is who we want to see holding power in the future. It's no surprise that in the deeply white supremacist society of America that the statues we see are celebrating white men. Those are the type of people that are put forward as this is who should hold power. So if we are changing, as we have been in the last few decades, the idea of who should aspire to hold power in the United States, it's no surprise to me we have to change what our monuments look like. Everybody should grow up in the U.S. seeing models for themselves, inspiration for themselves in our public monuments. And that is very definitely not the case today. And so on that note, though, you wrote that American monuments were built to show us our place within national hierarchies of power. But we're often told by those who oppose the removal of these monuments that all we're looking at is the history of the South and that removing them is revisionism. Why are they wrong? Well, a monument isn't a history lesson. It's a pledge of allegiance. It's a very narrow vision of history. And it's only one source of information. Removing the statue of Robert E. Lee from Richmond isn't going to remove 
the idea of Lee or of Confederacy from all sorts of history books. I often say that if you want to know what true historical erasure is, consult someone indigenous whose family identity, whose religion, whose culture was attempted to be wiped off the face of the earth. That looks a lot different than taking down a statue, which is removing honor, but not removing history. We see some of these monuments dedicated to people who have undeniably committed crimes, genocide, sedition, treason. The monuments themselves, do they constitute art crimes? It seems hard to determine criminality when we talk about statues of Columbus or Confederate memorials and monuments. How do you sort that out? Well, a lot of the debate has had to do with the character of the person honored, but I think it's more important to look at the history of the monument itself as an object. Mm. So what was this particular hunk of bronze or marble put up to do in the community and what does it continue to do today? There have been really interesting scientific looks into the effects of seeing a monument celebrating someone who believed you were less than a person to people walking past every day. So you also have to think of the difference in viewing audiences. Somebody might think that this monument celebrates their history while others understand that it says that they're less than human. So something I tried to do in the book was also really dig into whether that's true, whether people who are defending monuments by saying this is just about Southern heritage or history or the tragedy of my ancestors dying in a fight that they weren't really into. They're just low-ranking soldiers in the Confederate Army. And I wanted to know if that was actually true. And looking into the history of monuments as monuments, you see that they're often put up at times of union unrest in the early 20th century, where there were attempts like in Birmingham, Alabama, to create interracial unions. And the monuments were put up by the bosses, the factory owners, to send a message of, hey, don't cross racial lines to create this union, because what's more important is your maintaining of your white heritage rather than actually earning a living wage right now. So they are monuments that are praising the obedience of the low-ranking Confederate soldier who paid attention to his betters rather than actually praising the Confederacy for anything that I think their ancestors would be wanting to be praised for for today. Right. And you make a mention of these monuments being white supremacy, being cast in marble and stone. What kind of effect was actually intended and produced by the boom in Confederate monuments during the early days of Jim Crow? Monuments were tests of loyalty to a lot of white Southerners. So there's a really interesting episode I go into in the creation of the North Carolina State Confederate Monument, where a new interracial uh, legislature denied funding for this monument. And then there's a huge scandal in the newspapers criticizing white legislatures for allying with the new Black members in the legislature to say, we don't want to honor the Confederacy. And they said, you know, you care more about... Frederick Douglass than you do about the Confederate tragedy, blah, 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 blah. And so there's a, a huge reversal and the monument did go up. The legislature re-voted. And soon after that, Black Carolinians were shut out of political power whatsoever. So monuments have always been a really good place to have more abstract debates about 
whom we should honor and who should hold power. So there is that message of intimidation to white Americans. But there's also, of course, an even more explicit goal of intimidating Americans of color, which has been recognized for forever. Frederick Douglass, for example, gave a speech at the dedication of a monument to Lincoln, the Freedmen's Memorial that still stands in Washington, D.C., where it's Lincoln holding out the Emancipation Proclamation to a kneeling Black man whose shackles uh, have just broken. But he's sort of kneeling there like in a daze. He doesn't really understand what's going on. And Douglas said, you know, I'd like to for once see a Black man represented standing on his feet, not crouching like an animal. But that was precisely the message that was being conveyed in the aftermath of the Civil War. Like, hey, you got emancipated. You're now free, but don't actually expect to be full equal citizens. Why don't you stay crouching there while we do what's best for you? Mm. You talked a lot about the building of Stone Mountain in Georgia in the book. You write that it helped, quote, build America. How was it built? And how do you mean that it helped build America? Stone Mountain is not much of a mountain. It's a sort of granite outcropping a few miles outside of Atlanta, but it is the site of the world's largest Confederate memorial. Size of about a football field of Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis riding across the mountain. It's still Georgia's most visited tourist destination. Millions of people of year see this carving. Most of them don't care about the carving per se. They're there for there's also animatronic dinosaurs and an obstacle course and all sorts of hiking opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But it still hangs there. Stacey Abrams called it a blight on the state and asked for its removal. It became a big issue in her last gubernatorial race and will probably be a, another issue this fall. So I wanted to look into the history of this thing because people think, oh, it's historical. You know, we can't remove something that has this historical value. But in reality, it wasn't finished until 1972. My grandparents have shag carpeting that's older than that monument. So I think it's okay to remove it. Uh, the project was begun in 1914 by a Confederate widow who wanted to honor her husband. She hired a sculptor named Goodson Borglum to carve just a head of Lee on the mountain. Mm -hmm. But he upsold her really intensely. By the time he was done planning, the project was going to have 700 figures riding across the mountain, each at least 35 feet high. And why did he do this? Because he was broke and he negotiated a contract where he would get a percentage of all the money paid. He was an extremely shady character. I research way too much about him. I had to cut out a whole other chapter. My editor is like, enough Borglum, come on. <laughs> but he joined the Klan. He was a child of immigrants, lived in Connecticut, was so obsessed with Abraham Lincoln that he named his son Lincoln. But because he was getting all this money to honor the Confederacy, he was like, cool, cool. I'll join the Klan. I'll raise all these funds. And then he was actually fired from the project because he was embezzling too much of the funds without producing enough carving. They blasted his head of Lee right off the mountain. So the way I think, one Lee down, one to go. And right. he ended up defecting back to the union and persuading some businessmen in Rapid City, South Dakota, to pay for him to carve portraits of presidents, which turned into the project of Mount Rushmore. <laughs> 
So it is funny that we don't often talk about who makes money from these kinds of things. You know, in the course of the 2020 uprising and these monuments being debated and some of them started to come down, we didn't really talk about who got paid to put these things up. And then reading that story started to make me think about it. Besides this particular schemer, who was getting richer off of building these things? Oh, so many people that you wouldn't necessarily want to spend your money on. And people continue to make money off of controversial or or hateful monuments. So I wrote this book during the pandemic. Mm. So it was only last month that I got to visit Stone Mountain for the first time in person. And I saw the carving and I thought, this is hard to look at. Not hard because of emotional turmoil, but literally hard to look at because it's stained. There's water runoff off the top of the mountain and they usually clean it every couple of years, but they haven't since 2020. Yeah. And the bill to clean it again, so it would actually be more visible, would be more than half a million dollars. So there's a cost of upkeep of honoring histories that we don't all subscribe to anymore. So I think you have to really Think about where our preservation funds, where our public art funds should go. Also on that trip to Atlanta, I visited the Confederate Cemetery, which is beautiful, greensward with violets blooming from it among these hundreds of neat gravestones. And then I visited Piney Grove Historical Cemetery, which is the largest African-American historical cemetery in the Atlanta area. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I had gotten lost, that I was just in the woods, but it's so overgrown. The gravestones are tumbled over. There are formerly enslaved people buried there, for example, who are just being reclaimed into the woods. So memory costs money, and we are spending money on a very particular vision of American history. Yeah. I mean, if there is any justice seeing Stone Mountain be in disrepair rather than actually blown off the face of the earth, I guess is all we can ask for. Yeah, there's these little pools on top of the mountain hold a rare variety of shrimp that only come to life when it rains and the pools fill up. In my heart, it gives me much joy to think that the Confederate heroes are now stained with runoff of shrimp shit. And maybe that's, we should just leave it that way. (laughs) we're going to take a quick break when we're back with some historical monuments there's a disconnect between how americans perceive them today and what motivated their original creation what does that disconnect have to do with the january 6th insurrection at the united states capitol Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic. 
an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. We've been talking about some of the reasons public statues and historic monuments were put up in the first place. And I think about how the people who walk past them every day, or maybe who work in buildings decorated with them, have largely forgotten their original intent. That the people who think their community is adorned with beautiful ennobling works of art don't realize the actual unfriendly and ugly intentions of the artwork's original makers. In the prologue to your book, Smashing Statues, Aaron, there's a story you tell that's kind of all about this and January 6th. While I was writing this book, the January 6th insurrection happened with people espousing white supremacy invading the Capitol. And there are all this news commentary of expressing surprise at people like this going past all of the beautiful art in the Capitol Rotunda. And how could this lack of civilization, this disorder exist within this beautiful artistic world. But to me, it made complete sense because the U.S. Capitol, its decoration was overseen by Jefferson Davis before he became the presidency of the Confederacy, before the Civil War. And he created an atmosphere that precisely in almost every artistic flourish speaks to an America as a place of white supremacy, as a place of genocide of indigenous peoples, as a place where God smiles upon the white settlers. And to me, all this culminates in the bronze statue that still tops the Capitol Dome, which is an allegorical representation of freedom. And Davis made sure that she represented freedom that belonged to people who had always been free, who had been born free. The original design was for someone wearing a particular hat that since ancient times had symbolized emancipation. And Davis was like, no, 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 shutting that down. Um, He didn't want anybody to think that the people currently enslaved in America could one day be free. And The Capitol Building Statue of Freedom is additionally ironic, not just in its design, but in its production. It was cast by a bronze sculptor and his longtime assistant, a man named Philip Reed, whom he owned. So this statue was made by the forced labor of an enslaved man who also, I discovered, knew what it was to fight for freedom. He was living with another woman owned by the same sculptor who I found in an abolitionist newspaper had escaped and been recaptured during the time of the making of this Statue of Freedom. So what does it mean for our senators, our congressmen, to be going to work every day under a statue that represents freedom as applying only to white Americans, Mm. a freedom that denies the experience of everyone else? I feel like that has some lingering effect. That's not just decoration. That is a subconscious shaping of our world. And no wonder, again, that the invaders on January 6th felt comfortable there because that is a space designed for people who believe that white Americans should be holding power. I'm interested also to know, um, because you discussed this in the book, how Confederate monuments actually subjugated white Southerners. Because you mentioned how 
they help discourage people from joining labor unions. Yeah. So I think in general, unless you are rich enough to pay for a monument and powerful enough to ensure it in a place in public, a monument is telling you your place in society or attempting to tell you that place. So what that place is that monuments have tried to arrange us all in has changed over the years. But I was interested to think about why there are so many monuments showing just a low-ranking anonymous Confederate soldier and why those poses were almost always the same. So these soldiers, they're not shown fighting, they're not shown coming back home, they're not shown heroic or rebellious, they're shown just standing there in this very stiff posture, which I found out by looking at military manuals from the time is known as parade rest. And it wasn't anything to do with fighting at all. That was the pose you would stand in when your drill instructor was telling you how to behave. And you were forbidden from moving or even speaking in that position. So these monuments are celebrating the obedience of the lower class, lower ranking soldiers. And if they're put up by people who are owning factories where these men or their descendants are working or owning mines or other industries, you got to think, you know, what message was being sent there? Who was being celebrated and for what? And what were they being warned not to do? And so I looked at a lot of dedication speeches of these monuments and, and people were not ashamed. They're not hiding what they were doing. Newspapers would print the records of these speeches with all sorts of hair-raising to me quotes. So, for example, the Birmingham Confederate Monument, which went up in two parts, each of which uh, were coordinated with an effort to avert a minor strike. One of the speeches at the dedication of this monument praised Confederate veterans for having averted the quote-unquote hideous specter of threatened racial equity. And this is what he was urging the listeners in the crowd to keep doing, keep on fighting the fight of your ancestors. Mm -hmm. And that monument was the first to be officially removed after the murder of George Floyd by Birmingham Mayor Randall Woodfin, again, who I, I had the privilege of interviewing to ask him what his motivations were and how he was able to overcome his fear of being criminally prosecuted or maybe removed from office. And he said it was absolutely worth that risk to take away something in the center of a majority Black town that was telling everybody, you know, you think you might have power over where you live, but you don't because it's against the law to remove this memorial. Yeah, I found that really fascinating. <laughs> Here's a man who's actually in elective office, who's actually has the power, a black man in power in the South, and he has to worry about being criminalized for doing what is ostensibly the right thing. That is like the power of the past reaching into the present in ways that only monuments and memorials are meant to do. I found it at once poetic and terrifying. Yeah, in the law, we call that the power of the dead hand. <laughs> Uh, yeah. You can sometimes try and use the law to shape people's lives even after you are long dead. And most of American law is dedicated to making sure that that doesn't happen, to limiting the power of the dead hand. But I got to tell you that monuments preservation laws are all about we put it up and nobody ever can even think about taking it down. Right. It, there's evidence of systemic racism all around us, but it was one of the more poetic examples of it. Certainly here is ostensibly a piece of art that is a, you know, monument to something horrible, someone horrible. And 
a black man whose ancestors were subjugated by this man and, and people like him potentially going to be criminalized by exercising the power granted him by the people. It's just, it's, yeah, your brain twists and turns just trying to understand it. And that's why I wanted to kind of pivot to the question of should erecting these monuments become illegal? And if so, what do you feel like is the mechanism, given what you know about the legal process, to getting there? Well, look, this is something that is absolutely going to twist your brain to think about how there is no legal procedure for questioning most monuments that we have. People think, oh, somebody shouldn't take the law into their own hands and just tear down a monument. But if there's no other way, there's no other way. So I think there needs to be in many more jurisdictions a way for us to legally, peacefully debate who is up in the public space. And I also think there should be much more public participation in new monuments. Mm. So, for example, while I was writing this book, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And the governor of New York a couple days later said, all right, there's going to be a, a statue of her, a monument to her in Brooklyn. And, you know, I love good RGBs as much as uh, many other people. But I thought, wait a minute, what if that neighborhood doesn't want a statue of her or wants somebody else or wants the statue in a different way? And we think public monuments are public, but what it really means is they're out in public to teach the public a lesson rather than they are a product of how a community or a city or a neighborhood really wants to see themselves or what they want to see every day. So I don't think we should be forced to look at monuments that we don't want to look at anymore, and nor should we be forced to allow a monument to be airdropped into our communities. And when I'm thinking uh, particularly cynical, I think, what's the use of monuments at all? I mean, I think of the use of monuments, I think of like building statues to people who we already know and already have been celebrated during their lives. I mean, I don't know. It's debatable. And I, I completely agree. Of course, we have the Washington Monument, but also the Lincoln Memorial. Should we have memorials? Should we keep them, but get you away with monuments? And given the, the distinction you made earlier, can we, you know, for instance, keep the memorial to lynching victims in Birmingham that the Equal Justice Initiative has established? Keep the memorial to Martin Luther King in Washington, uh, keep, you know, memorial to trailblazers of the civil rights movement, but at the same time, monuments to people. Just make sure that we do away with lionizing people. Even if we think that like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we think that ostensibly they were quote unquote on our side. Yeah, this is why I think the distinction between memorials and monuments is so important. We totally have so many things we need to remind people that we don't want to have happen again. This is why the lynching memorial is so powerful. But this idea of monuments as inspirational, I'm not sure anymore. A lot of the debate has been like, who goes up on the horse next? We took down this dude from the monumental horse. Now, who else goes up in the saddle? But I think, why have a horse at all? There are contemporary artists who are doing really interesting things with monuments and memorials as, as beams of light, as gardens, as a community cookout or debate stations, except there's so much creativity that could happen that's not just, let's put somebody else up. Because nobody is perfect. And even if somehow there exists 
a perfect person that you can put into a monument, not everybody looks like that person. So they're not going to inspire everybody. And as America changes, I hope for the better, we can't afford to have people go uninspired. Right. And maybe we should also be thinking a little bit more broadly and creatively and critically about different ways to inspire people rather than building statues. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And making plaques that honor people who are dead. I just think maybe finding different ways to tell stories about people and think critically about what people have done is a better way of inspiring people. Casting people in bronze, I think maybe is the least critical way to think about a person's deeds that we can possibly offer. It literally offers no room for correction or nuance. It just simply offers one interpretation. And based on what they look like rather than what they did or they think or they wrote or they sang or whatever. It's If you think about it for more than a couple of seconds, it becomes extremely weird. This is how we honor people yeah. is by making yeah, them like what, what, like what is a statue of like Adam Clayton Powell or Langston Hughes or Zora Neale Hurston or James Baldwin really do for me? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It's, it's always been strange to me. I don't know. Where do you think this instinct comes from just on a human level? to memorialize, to create monuments. Well, it's deeply human to try and shape the world by having control over something you can control, like a block of marble. And there is something very deep in our brains that still thinks there is some sort of connection between an image and reality. Think about how weird it feels to harm an image or even... Like, you feel bad if you see some mean kid rip the arm off a Barbie or something. Our brains still continue to think there's a link between human beings and images of humans. So that can be very powerful to use in terms of of inspiration or questioning. But I think monuments are just pretty boring. They often don't use the power that images can have to do anything very interesting. So why not do something else? And that's what's really exciting about living today is that it's not like anybody has any particularly be-all and end-all answers about monuments, about which should stay up, which should go down, which should be replaced. I think everybody can make their opinions known and really have some change in in your community, in your town square, in your local museum, et cetera. So I encourage people to do some research, figure out who exactly is that up on the pedestal that you walk past every day and don't pay attention to, and then make your opinion known about whether that's a good thing, whether that's a bad thing, whether you need to add some signage or another monument or, I don't know, melt it down and turn it into a slide to have more fun out in the park. We're going to take one last quick break, but when we come back, more and more Americans are coming to realize that the people sculpted in stone or metal standing tall in town squares or in front of schools were often pretty horrible. So why isn't there a clear consensus supporting their removal? I read a story recently about a black man named Devin Henry, whose contracting company has been helping to take down close to two dozen Confederate monuments thus far. And he's doing it because many won't take that business. 
But there should be a large number of Americans, I'm thinking, who say, listen, this is a blight on our country. This is something I should want to remove. Why wouldn't they want to be a part of that? I don't really understand either, but I think that the debates over whether or not we should take down cruel monuments really show that the the Civil War isn't over mm. uh, and we might have to come to more of a consensus about the nature of America before we can come to a consensus about the symbols of our nation. Well, the only way I think really we get to an end for that is truth and reconciliation. And that's a process I know I spoke with Brian Stevenson about on this podcast. And one of the things he and I spoke about was Germany and the process of denazification. Now, I know that that's not something that you addressed in your book, but is that an example that we need to follow here in the United States? To me, one sign of how far we are in America from doing a truth and reconciliation process is the current bill under consideration in Alabama. They want to even further strengthen the protections for monuments to not allow people like the Birmingham mayor to take down Confederate monuments. And one of the proposals is that anyone who adds a sign to a monument to explain a deeper history, a more complex history about this monument would be fined $10,000 a day. Even city officials who vote in favor of putting up a sign would have that fine if this proposal goes through. So you can see the strength of the resistance to the idea of equality in America really crystal clear in debates about monuments, which is why I think it's worth it to do what I've done is watch a whole bunch of super boring city council hearings on Zoom (laughs) to see how people actually talk about monuments. And the difference between the debates we're having today and what happened in the denazification process in Germany is really there was a very clear rejection of Nazi ideology in Germany. There were all sorts of caveats like, oh, I wasn't that bad, even though I was a Nazi official, it wasn't my fault, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but the overarching ideology was rejected. And it was immediately obvious to people that we have to take down those symbols. We have to blow up the giant swastikas overlooking the Nuremberg Stadium to show that that is not what we as a community believe anymore. But in America, we're not sure there isn't that consensus. So we're not sure what should stay and what should go. And I find it, for example, very striking that we talk a whole lot about the destruction, the removal of monuments, but they haven't really in America been destroyed. There have been 200 plus monuments that have been removed from their pedestals since the death of George Floyd, but almost all of those are in storage. I only found one statue of Columbus that can't be re-put up, that was chipped away, just a small portrait of him from the side of a monument. Everything else could be redeployed. And now we're spending all these preservation funds to maintain, what, some sort of like North American strategic racism reserve with all of these statues? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, and and that's the thing is like, I don't understand exactly what value they have either being held in storage or being displayed in a museum. You don't need to keep them to possibly redeploy them as agents of Jim Crow. Uh, To me, it's a sign that not everyone agrees upon what these things symbolize. And that's one of the reasons why I don't know if we can do what they did in Germany with denazification here in the United States, 
That's why the effort here would be different from what they did there. I, I don't know if we could come to a common understanding and definition about what these monuments and memorials actually signify. Exactly. But it might be that the conversations we have with each other while attempting to come to a resolution of the issue, not just of the very abstract big issue of equality in America, but the very particular, like, what should we do with this thing in our town? Those are conversations that are good to have, even if the result is confusing and maybe just results in keeping the status quo. One of the most interesting things that I put into the book was a group of activists who protested the removal of a Columbus statue in New Jersey, not because they wanted it up. They had been asking for its removal for years, but they didn't want it to just disappear. They wanted to have a procession, a march in celebration of the removal to make it clear why it had been removed instead of just saying, oh, we never had this problem. They wanted to have a celebration of renunciation to equal the celebration that had accompanied the erection of the statue. They wanted to have a funeral, like a second line? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's not all depressing talking about monuments. To be clear, they delayed the removal by exactly two days. Uh, they had planned a march and the, the mayor was trying to snatch it out of there before they could do their planned celebration. I mean, I'm all for people need ceremony. You know, I mentioned second line. I've seen people do second lines in New Orleans for Katrina, trying to bury the trauma of a hurricane, which is this amorphous, intangible thing. If we can bury that, why not try to essentially bury the trauma that's stored up in a monument, this thing that's been constructed to either traumatize or to lionize someone who inflicted trauma? I can understand how that makes sense. Or why not reuse the power of the monument? So there's a really interesting project to deal with the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville that was the center of the deadly Unite the Right rally in 2017. The Charlottesville City Council gave it to the Jefferson School, a local African-American heritage center, to plan to melt it down and commission an artist to work with the community to plan a new monument to be created by using that bronze. Mm. So the idea that you could melt down something that is such a symbol of hate and use it to make something that is new and beautiful is really amazing to me and also assures that you can't redeploy Lee when conditions change. Right, right. And yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, there's, there's a way to repurpose that. That's that's great. And maybe that's how we have true accountability. Maybe that's how you can have it with a physical form. Maybe that's how you make people's lives better with these monuments rather than just simply melting them down and removing them from our midst. Or again, you know, slides. I like the slides idea. I have kids, so I'm always for more more slides in public spaces. So you could have a little sign talking about the Confederacy and also some chill new playground equipment. This is my pitch for America. <laughs> well, I'm all for anything that helps make the destruction of something that's evil, like Confederate monuments, into something constructive. And so how do you think we can do that? How do you think that we can smash statues like this and make that a constructive act? Well, you know, we've been sort of laughing during this interview, and this is something I often do. I think the book 
is engaging and, and entertaining and people tell me that parts of it are very funny because I want to draw the sting from these monuments to say you're not as powerful. You're not actually making people as afraid as you thought you were. We now see how truly ridiculous these monuments are. So I think understanding how the objects work, that they're not an inevitable part of American society, that they're just something that somebody put up there and maybe we want to switch out, you know, we want to redecorate our parks. That's okay. And thinking about monuments as flexible, as more about the future than about the past is really important because we all have a say in what our future should be, whether that is by electing people or running for office ourselves or deciding who we want to walk past on our way to the courthouse or the state legislature or even the post office. (laughs) Amen. Aaron Thompson, author of Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Thank you very much for joining us on Vox Conversations. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I wanted to take a minute at the end here to share a bit of bittersweet news with you all. This will be my final sign-off as a Vox senior correspondent and the host of Vox Conversations. It's been both an honor and joy to join you here from time to time and to bring you conversations with folks such as Brian Stevenson, Valerie Kaur, and Robert Glasper, discussing everything from civil rights to body image. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations as much as I've enjoyed having them. And since Vox Conversations isn't going anywhere, keep that subscription. You'll be hearing from Sean Illing on Mondays and many of our talented colleagues at Vox and beyond on Thursdays going forward. So stay tuned and please keep an eye out for my journalism elsewhere in the future. And find me on Twitter at Jamil Smith and Instagram at Jamil K. Smith. Once again, thanks to my colleagues here at the show and thanks to you all out there for listening. Box Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Box Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. Hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review.